Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a speech pathologist and rehabilitation counselor discuss what life is like after traumatic brain injury. It remains a silent epidemic. It's something that a lot of people deal with and you can't really see a lot of the consequences of brain injury uh, just from looking at somebody. A physical therapist explains how to keep your feet strong and healthy. Having the strength in your ankle to, to lift your body weight is really essential for your ability to walk. We use our ankle a lot to push ourselves forward. And a registered dietitian nutritionist talks about the importance of planning meals and enjoying one's food. I think it's important when we talk about variety, it's also important for people to enjoy their food. I want people to enjoy life, I want people to enjoy food. All that along with a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a physical therapist about how to keep our feet strong and healthy. Then, we'll learn about the role of registered dietitian nutritionists in hospitals, other institutions, and in the community. But first, a speech pathologist teams up with a rehabilitation counselor to discuss what life is like after traumatic brain injury. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're talking about what life is like after a traumatic brain injury with two experts from Upstate's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio are Lauren Westby, a speech-language pathologist and certified brain injury specialist, and, jo and Dr. Joanne Scandelli, who is certified rehabilitation counselor and certified brain injury trainer. Dr. Scandelli is also the president of the Brain Injury Coalition of Central New York. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Let's start with an explanation of how many people are affected by traumatic brain injury or TBI. How common is this? It's far more common than people uh, generally imagine. A brain injury takes place in the United States every nine seconds. So one out of 60 people in the United States lives with a TBI-related disability. That's about 5.3 million Americans, or 2% of the country's population. So, our, thank you, Dr. Scandelli. Are, are TBIs always caused by an injury, or can it be from an illness? So, acquired brain injury is actually an umbrella term. Um, it encompasses all different types of brain injury, whereas traumatic brain injury is a subset of acquired oh. brain injury. Um, so, it's caused by a trauma from the brain from an external source. Okay. So is it always apparent that someone has a TBI at the time of an injury? Not at all. Um, it's, TBI doesn't necessarily show up uh, in the case of concussion, for instance, on uh, typical radiologic uh, tests. Um, so a person could have a brain injury, suffer the sequelae of brain injury or its functional uh, impact, and not even be able to say, look, I have evidence, I have a brain injury. It remains a silent epidemic. It's something that a lot of people deal with and you can't really see a lot of the consequences of brain injury uh, just from looking at somebody. So you mentioned concussion. I was going to ask, what is the difference between traumatic brain injury and concussion? A concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. And then traumatic brain injury would be more significant. Um, it's typically that we um, rate brain injury as mild, moderate, and severe. Um, and that has to do with the length of time someone uh, is in a coma um, and uh, different kinds of uh, scales and their scores on those rating scales. Can we talk about the signs and symptoms? Sure. Um, so when after a brain injury, uh, a lot of people deal with things like reduced energy and motivation. Uh, they can have long-lasting impacts of headaches and fatigue. 
Um, a lot of people who have had a brain injury will complain of poor attention and concentration, and memory is actually one of the most common cognitive impairments that people have after brain injury. Um, there can be irritability and mood disturbances, personality changes, sleep uh, impacts to return to work and driving are, are usually a consequence of all of these symptoms um, that they deal with. Uh, it's very hard for them to return to driving and to work because of these cognitive skills that have changed. So conceivably, someone could fall, uh, slip on the ice, yeah. common in central New York, hit their head, not realize that they've got a serious injury, and then start experiencing some of the symptoms you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yes, so. predominantly people could um, have headache, uh, a visual impact as well, um, perhaps some ringing in the ears, insomnia. Um, so there are uh, uh, more subtle kinds of signs that perhaps someone has acquired a brain injury. And a lot of people don't always associate the, those with brain injury, and so a lot of people don't seek help. How is it diagnosed? If you if you come to the emergency room um, saying that you've you know got headaches and trouble remembering and that you fell a few days ago, how do they go about diagnosing that, oh, you've got a traumatic brain injury? So usually that would fall on the physician to diagnose. Uh, they usually do a CT uh, that will show frank bleeding. An and, imaging yep, of the brain? And then an MRI uh, will sometimes show those white matter changes that we sometimes oh. see. But concussion and mild traumatic brain injury, those aren't always evident on imaging. So what is the treatment for TBI? Um, it depends on how it affects each individual. Each brain is unique as each person is. So uh, when someone presents, um, a person is going to take uh, their history, they're going to take a look at their um, symptoms, and then um, make some sort of recommendations. So a person could see an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a speech-language pathologist, all depending on their needs. Especially uh, in our department, we have um, physiatrists who are experts in uh, brain injury rehabilitation, um, and uh, they see a lot of people in our community who uh, have different symptoms. And as well, we have the concussion um, clinic and program. So I know it's very individualized, but in terms of recovery, is there any way to project how long it's going to take an individual person to recover? Typically, they say that the most recovery is going to take place within the first one to two years. After that, um, recovery seems to slow down, but as the person's able to expose themselves to different situations in the community, um, hopefully there are uh, chances for them to learn and grow further. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Joanne Scandelli and Lauren Westby from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. Dr. Scandelli is a rehabilitation counselor, and Lauren Westby is a speech pathologist. I'd like to talk with you about the functional impact of traumatic brain injury and how it affects daily life. So what are the typical deficits for someone after a TBI? So a lot of people who have had a TBI will experience um, a lot of uh, attention and concentration, cognitive impairments, um, memory impairments. Um, they can be irritable or have difficulties with impulse control or behavior. Um, and so these are people that really do need to follow up um, out, you know, with an outpatient therapist, uh, OT, PT, speech therapy, people that specialize in, in brain injury. Does the actual impact of where the injury is in the brain determine what sorts of symptoms they're going to end up dealing with? Yes, and every brain is different. So the same injury could affect a person uh, differently. Same thing with um, gender. It has certain kinds of impact as well, uh, both in uh, concussion uh, and um, traumatic brain injury. Um, so the impact of the brain and where it affects each, the brain is divided into lobes. Um, and 
uh, each area has a different function. So if someone were injured in, let's say, the parietal region of the brain, we would know that they might have some difficulty with sensory input. Um, they might have uh, difficulty with um, some memory if their injury is also going into the temporal lobe area. Um, so there are functions that are related to specific areas of the brain. Um, and we may want to use what's called a neuropsychiatric, neuropsychological evaluation to help determine um, what areas of the brain are impacted if, in fact, there are, aren't radiologic kinds of evidence. The, do TBIs necessarily affect a person's personality? They can. They can. Yeah. Is it a permanent the, change? It can be sometimes. The frontal lobe um, is actually where our personality centers are located, at least some of them. And the, the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe are the ones that are most predominantly injured in traumatic brain injury just because of where they sit in the brain um, or in the skull. I'm sorry. Uh, so typically we do see personality changes in brain injury. How do you go about communicating with a patient whose injuries may have impacted their ability to understand or communicate? So uh, these people typically do follow up with a speech-language pathologist. We do extensive evaluations and treatment. Um, we look at all of the modalities of language. Uh, language is, encompasses understanding language, being able to express language, as well as reading and writing. Um, and we, we try and maximize whatever modality of language is uh, essentially the most functional for them so that they can effectively communicate with their family and their friends. It sounds like that could be challenging. It is, too. Well, uh, let me ask you this. What are some of the most common misconceptions that you hear about working as you do with this population? Do you, do you encounter um, family members that come in and, and have misconceptions about what's happening? Absolutely. So um, there's actually a lot of misconceptions about brain injury, uh, one being that mild traumatic brain injury and concussion are not serious, um, and they certainly can have long-lasting impacts, um, more so than we, we sometimes give it credit for. Cognitive and behavioral changes as well as personality changes make a big difference. Um, uh, a lot of times we hear, well, I didn't lose consciousness. Um, that is just one indicator of a brain injury, but there's other indicators. Uh, they don't remember the event, or if there's something on imaging, those are also indicators of a brain injury. Um, you don't actually have to strike your head on anything to suffer a brain injury. Your skull is hard, and so just your brain hitting into your skull can cause a brain injury as well. Um, so you could be like in a car accident, and you're not, not physically your head doesn't seem to hit nope. something, but the force yes. does enough damage. And Absolutely. one very common misconception is in children. And unfortunately, the, the long-standing myth for children is that they make a better recovery. And a lot of times we see a faster and a quicker recovery after brain injury, but the long-standing cognitive impairments we often see much later in life. They tend to be what we call growing into a brain injury. Now, you mentioned earlier physiatrist, and that's a, another member of the team that patients may um, see if they end up uh, in, the in the rehabilitation unit. Can you explain what a physiatrist is, and then can we list some of the other members of the team? Certainly. A physiatrist is a doctor of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, on our team, um, we have physiatrists who are also specialized in the area of brain injury. So they um, are they are medical doctors, they, and then they specialized on top of that in physical medicine rehabilitation. Yes. Okay. Um, also, we have occupational therapists. We have nurses. Um, we have some certified rehabilitation nurses. Um, we have uh, physical therapists speech-language pathologists, recreation therapists. Um, myself, um, as a rehabilitation counselor, also takes a look at the vocational and uh, social kinds of issues a person faces as they um, reintegrate into the community. Now, both of you are certified brain injury specialists. What did it take? That's on top of your training to become a speech pathologist. So what did, what did you do to become, you know, specialized? 
The um, American Academy of Brain Injury Specialists offers a certification um, to show that we have an interest in making a good foundation in the education of individuals who provide services for people with traumatic brain injury. And um, you have to have a minimum of 500 hours of working directly with someone with a brain injury and their family. Um, you have to already have been um, certified in some other area. And then we uh, train them through the curriculum. Um, I, as the trainer, uh, go through the curriculum with them. Then they sit for an examination and uh, hopefully pass, and then they earn their certification. Well, before we go, let me ask you, are there preventive steps that you see that people could have taken to avoid the head injuries that, that lead to traumatic brain injury? In some instances, yes. I mean, it was a big um, uh, initiative by the Brain Injury Association, both national and of New York, to do the helmets, for the sports, um, helmets for bicycle riding, wearing the seatbelt laws, all those were initiatives from um, the Brain Injury Association of America. Um, so that, that, that's pretty uh, clear, you know. Be careful not to fall. Um, people that are older, uh, myself and older, uh, tend to have falls. That's a leading cause of brain injury. Um, so make your home safe, uh, avoid having uh, electrical cords running across your path and things like that, scatter rugs, things to be careful of when you set up your home um, for someone who's older or someone who's younger. Um, well, good advice. Well, thank you so much both to Dr. Joanne Scandelli and Lauren Westby from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, keeping your feet strong and healthy. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Our feet take a beating day after day, but there are things we can do in order to maintain foot health. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Associate Professor Christopher Neville from the Department of Physical Therapy Education at Upstate. He's also the co-director of the Motion Analysis Lab at Upstate's Institute for Human Performance. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Neville. Yes, good morning. Thank you. So what can you tell us about the importance of looking out for our feet and ankles? Do we, um, do we need help choosing the right kinds of shoes? Well, sort of lots of things I think we can do for uh, the health of our feet. And it's interesting you bring up the idea of shoes. Um, there's, there's sort of some new research and, and new interest, and, and maybe this doesn't seem too new to many people, as you bring up shoes and actually not wearing shoes, right? So the less we wear shoes, perhaps the more we're using the muscles and the, the joints of our feet that are supposed to move and use these muscles when we don't put them in shoes uh, more. And so um, some efforts, and you know, this is not too new with barefoot running and shoes that are very low profile and things like that, um, really with more of the work that I do, um, interest in, in what, what we haven't done yet is translate that into patient care and what, you know, the average person should do, right, aside from elite runners and things like that. But in terms of spending some time without shoes on your feet, it's, might it, be. it may be a good thing, right? It's something we have to be a little careful of. Um, certain patient populations with diabetes, things like that. And then for the average person, right, we have to worry that we're, you know, there's a reason we wear shoes, right? So we don't step on things, we don't damage the bottom of our feet. Um, but if we can avoid those things, there may be positive benefits of not wearing shoes and utilizing all the muscles and joints that support our feet normally. What about people whose shoes hurt them, that are uncomfortable, but they wear them anyway because they like the way they look or they go with a particular outfit? Yeah, yeah. Are they doing um, permanent damage? 
Well, um, I mean, ill-fitting shoes and shoes that hurt, right, are probably not good for your feet, right? Pain is a pretty good indicator in general of things that are not good for us. So, um, I mean, do we know long-term is, you know, is, is wearing a pair of shoes that go with an outfit, right? We all do this, right? We dress up for whatever reason. For short periods of time, this is probably okay. Um, now we also know that, that, uh, it, it can link to things like bunions, uh, you know, big toe hallux deformities, things like that. So long-term use of shoes that don't fit are, is not good for your feet. So how do we know if our feet and our ankles are strong enough? How do we know if they're healthy? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. It's one that really most of my work is, is interested in, which relates to the strength of our foot and ankle, right? Um, it's been an area, you know, and this sort of maybe ties back into shoes. We put our feet and our ankles into shoes, right? And we walk around on them. And we don't think too much about what's being, you know, what, what inside, what muscles, what ligaments are really supporting your feet inside your shoes. There's some old, old data that has really been, continues to be referenced that sort of suggests the joints, the joints themselves in your feet, and then the ligaments that surround them may provide sort of the support that's needed for your feet. And so, you know, so, so essentially your muscles aren't needed, right? But there's newer work that's sort of suggesting that's not the case, that the muscles, right, which big aha, right? Of course, we have all these muscles that go down into our feet. Well, we need them, right? And the idea is that they probably are doing something. They're generating power that helps us walk, that helps us move. And, and so looking at those muscles and how we continue to strengthen them, use them, um, keep them healthy, things like that is probably important. And, and there's probably lots of things we do, including putting ourselves in fairly stiff shoes and walking around and things like that, that, that decreases the amount we use those muscles. So are there exercises for these muscles that we should be doing or do they get enough just from us walking? No, I, I think there are, you know, we, we, we know two things. One, ankle, so this, is, this relates to range of motion, ankle dorsiflexion, your ability to pick your foot up, right? So pick your foot up towards your head. The amount that your foot moves up towards your lower leg. Um, we know that people with limited dorsiflexion, so if you don't have enough of that, it, it predisposes you. It's a risk factor for a whole series of different foot and ankle conditions. And these are the most common conditions like plantar fasciitis, um, Achilles tendinopathy, ankle sprains, all three of those, the three most common orthopedic injuries in the foot and ankle are linked to lack of dorsiflexion. So one, having adequate range of motion and keeping your ankle moving is important. But then the second part is your ability to rise up onto your toes, lift your body weight up onto your toes. So, so having the strength in your ankle to, to lift your body weight is really essential for your ability to walk. We use our ankle a lot to push ourselves forward. Now, interestingly, the problem is as you lose that ability, you compensate. And so people don't notice it. They don't notice that they can't, they don't have that strength in their ankle anymore. Some of this is a natural process of aging. As we get older, we, we lose muscle strength. We, our, our tendons and our ligaments change structure a little bit. And so we lose this ability to produce that power. But, um, but long term, and the, you know, that's a negative consequence to our overall functional mobility. And there's things you can do to prevent it, right? Or at least, you know, slow it down. Well, like you mentioned, Stan, I mean, going up on your toes occasionally to see if you can do that or how long you can stay yeah. up there yeah. and things like that. Yeah, it's a good strengthening exercise. I mean, again, lots of, you know, exercise programs, health and wellness programs. We see people you know, walking, doing squats, going up and down stairs, things like that. But not a lot that focuses on our foot and on our ankles. And so, um, and yet your ankle may be the, you know, the joint that contributes the most to actually pushing yourself forward for normal speed walking. Well, I want to ask you more about the foot problems that you just mentioned, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Associate Professor Christopher Neville from the Department of Physical Therapy Education at Upstate. So how would someone know that something's wrong with their feet or ankles? You mentioned plantar fasciitis. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have heard of that, but what is, what is it? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, your first question, sort of, how do we know if something's wrong with our feet? I mean, 
like lots of things, I mean, pain is, is right, a, a common indicator, right? It's why people come to see medical professionals. It's why they come to see physical therapists. It's why they go to see their primary care doctors, right? It's rare that we have, and this is sort of relevant for the foot and ankle, is that lots of times we have problems. We refer deformities in our feet, right? You're to a toe that, that's turning a little bit or an arch that starts to collapse or something that looks different side to side from one foot to the other. And for the most part, people ignore those, right? They, they see the, you know, they, we don't seek medical attention for those until they hurt, right? So it's usually pain that drives people in to do something about it. Um, and those changes you mentioned may be so subtle over time. It's not like you wake up one morning yeah. and your toes turn the other, or maybe right, maybe sure. you do, but um, if it's a gradual thing, you might not even yeah. really notice it. Yeah, yeah, and so. it's another reason why we don't always, you know, pursue things until it really bothers you. Um, so... Uh, you know, so there are certain conditions, plantar fasciitis, which is basically pain along the, the bottom of your foot and the heel of your foot. We think it's related to some of the uh, ligamentous support that occurs in the bottom of your foot. Um, it's very common. It's probably the most common, you know, uh, pain-related uh, issue in your foot and ankle. Um, and there is good treatment available for it. Um, and we also know that it runs somewhat of a natural course and that lots of people do get it and lots of people, you know, it resolves. In, in almost all people, it resolves naturally without surgical intervention or things like that. You mentioned Achilles tendinopathy. Is that uh, tendon? Yes, we have a really big a, a tendon on the back of our ankle, right, on the back of our heel. This is your Achilles tendon. It attaches to two muscles in your, in your calf or in your lower leg. This is a, a huge tendon, a huge set of muscles that really propels our ankle uh, to, to move. Um, it's traumatically ruptured in some people, right? You can rupture that ligament, but you also can just develop pain in that ligament or in that, I'm sorry, in that tendon. And, and this pain, um, we think links to a few different things. Sometimes it's uh, an inflammation kind of pain, and then other times it's actually a degenerative kind of pain. And both of those occur within the tendon. And there's some recent evidence that suggests they may be occurring even together um, for most people. But again, there's good conservative treatment for those things. There's also surgical treatment, um, obviously in the event of ruptures and things like that, but also in the event of just pain, sometimes surgical interventions are needed. Now you as a physical therapist, do you specialize in the feet? Um, I really, so most of my sort of research work and background is in the joints and mechanics of, of your foot and ankle. Again, you know, for most people, we think of like the hip replacements and knee replacements that have been done for a long time. Um, these are joints that are well studied. Um, in some ways, it was just time, but in another way, it was also technology for studying small joints, small joints of our foot, even joints of our ankle that are hard to get to. Um, we didn't have the technology for those things, um, and that's evolved over the last, I mean, even 15 years. And so we have more knowledge and understanding about these little joints in our foot and ankle. And so most of my work has, has focused on understanding those mechanics. Interesting. I know that you were recently interviewed for Real Simple Magazine mm -hmm. um, talking about what people can do to make their feet feel better at the end of the day and we're not talking about foot problems but we're just talking about you know you've been on your feet all day and they're sore and achy when you get home right yeah. what advice were you able to give yeah that's hard i mean obviously this crosses over a lot into some of the things we've talked about already maintaining range of motion keeping your foot and ankle moving um, maybe that means taking it out of some shoes a little bit and keeping these joints moving um, as well as strengthening and things like that um, but when we think of you know what makes our feet feel better at the end of the day when your feet are sore and tired from walking around all day or um, you know it's hard to think about doing exercise and right. strengthening and so you know lots of things that just make our feet feel better are rest related and and things like that and that's that you know that's what that um that story sort of talked about a little bit and you know going back and reading it, it, it one of the things that struck me is we're missing the wellness component of strengthening our feet. And that's that's a piece that's kind of missing from, you know, from any discussion of what just makes our feet feel better, but really long-term health of the joints and the muscles that surround those, you know, our foot and ankle probably needs some strengthening, right? 
So why does elevating our feet feel good to come home and stick them on the coffee yeah. table at the end of the day? What's... Yeah. Well, your feet, you know, there's a cardiovascular component to this or a vascular component to it that your feet are dependent, meaning they, you know, are sitting below our heart and, and gravity's feeding blood down into our lower legs all day long. And, and so, you know, our feet have to work extra hard to try and get all that blood back up to our heart, right? And it doesn't happen really efficiently. So, so at the end of the day, especially um, as you have vascular compromise in different ways, and these, this, some of this probably occurs normally, but also in, in certain conditions where the vasculature in our lower limbs becomes less, less able to kind of move all this blood back up. And so at the end of the day, putting them up may really help with swelling and edema and things like that. And so for some patients, it's actually, you know, very necessary. Well, let me ask you about, um, kind of tied into that, I think, uh, compression socks or stockings. Uh, is that something everyone should be looking at, or are those geared to people with certain conditions? Yeah, I mean, definitely not everyone. Um, certain conditions, for sure, it's indicated, and and those relate back to if you have vascular compromise that's limiting the ability of your vasculature to return blood back up your leg, you may need augmenting with compression socks and things like that. They're very effective for that. It's helpful to just sort of balance out the pressures that are returning um, uh, blood back up to your you know, heart and things like that. Now, would other people, and now you do see some like even runners wearing them and things like that. There are you know, some added uh, compression that helps with just vascular exchange can be helpful in, in different, you know, scenarios where people are exerting themselves. Um, they're, not, they're not harmful to anybody um, as long as they're fitted correctly and as long as they're not, uh, you know, producing swelling. Um, but, uh, but they're probably not needed for, for many people either. Well, that's good advice. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you to Associate Professor Christopher Neville from the Department of Physical Therapy Education at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. We'll hear from a registered dietitian nutritionist next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Could a registered dietitian nutritionist help you make better food choices? Well, today I'm going to speak with registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin from Upstate. She's been a frequent guest on HealthLink on Air, and I thank you for making time again today, Maureen. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I want to start out by asking you to tell us about the role of a registered dietitian nutritionist. When might a doctor refer a patient to someone like you? Oh, well, typically any kind of medical situation that would call in terms of for people to start making positive changes in terms of their diet, say someone who has just been recently diagnosed with diabetes, someone with heart concerns, um, someone with some GI issues, say irritable bowel syndrome. Um, we even have patients who are referred in terms of um, maybe they're having problems gaining weight, which is a fun thing to work with clients, or the opposite, people who need to lose weight to help themselves in terms of maybe arthritis, um, you know, joint problems, those kinds of things. So there's a multitude of medical concerns that a doctor would typically refer someone to. How would a person prepare if they have a visit for, uh, with a nutritionist coming up? How would, how would you guide them to prepare for that visit? Well, one of the things, and I know, as you said, I've been a frequent flyer on your program. One of the things I always like people to do is if they can write down at least a few days' worth and do a food diary, a food log, I think that's a really important thing because it can help the dietitian look at what you're typically eating. Because, it's you know, when we put people sometimes on the spot, like, what did you eat last Tuesday? They're like, I have no clue. Or what did you eat last night? Sometimes we remember, sometimes we don't. But a food log can give people an idea. And you have to be as honest as possible, but it helps you look at your pattern. It helps you look at your style of eating. It can help you look at the times that you're eating. And I always tell people when they do that to at least include a weekend because our Mondays through Fridays are so different from our weekends. 
And I know there's some online resources for tracking what mm-hmm. you eat, right? Oh, there's online. Now there's all the apps that people can do in terms of it. You know, there's all the different things where you can put in and do a profile, and they'll give you a calorie range. I, some of those are great because I, I think that's helping people look at what they're doing. I like ones when people are doing it um, that have like a wheel and they give you the breakdown of your carb, protein, fats, and calories. I think that's an important component for people to look at because a lot of times people have no idea what what mainly their, their intake consists of. Are they a big carb eater? Are they like a high fat eater? And I find those very, very helpful. And then that can help the dietitian guide the patient. And so they need to be mindful of the time they eat, because that says something, and then what they eat, and then how much of it? How much of it, and also sometimes who, with who are you eating, and where are you eating? You know, are you with, you know, your husband or your partner, and they're sitting there watching TV, and they're snacking, and you just start snacking with them. And is it late at night, and is it after dinner, what time? So those are a lot of the behavioral things that I think sometimes people don't realize that are important. I find very important when dealing with what am I doing as far as my eating pattern and my eating style. So would people uh, necessarily be coming for like a one-time visit, or would they perhaps see a nutritionist regularly? Well, a, a terrible time, timely thing right now is insurance payments. Personally, from a, a dietitian's perspective, I would love people to come more often, um, but sometimes, again, with your insurance coverage, some people can't afford that. But the ideal situation is an initial consult where we kind of get an idea of, oh, this is how you're eating, and then we give you a plan or some guidelines. I like revisits. You know, usually I like people to work with whatever plan we've devised and say, okay, let's come back in maybe about a month and let's see how this is working for you. And then you could probably go from like a six-week basis if you need it. All right, so the other things we're going to talk about in this interview are sort of going to be some general advice about nutrition, but a registered dietitian nutritionist is able to give more of a personal approach. Is that right? Yes, yes. I think more of a personal approach and not only a personal approach, more of a scientifically based approach. Um, It's not somebody that's been on the Internet and just has the advice or it's your neighbor down the street um, or it's just something that you read or somebody told you about. You know, we're looking, we're registered dietitians. We're registered through our academy. We have to take training. Um, Everything that we look at is more scientifically based. And I know it's, uh, it seems like a rigorous program in college, you know, for... for Yeah, it's definitely a rigorous thing. And I think that, that when we talk about the changes, I think people sometimes don't realize what we've gone through in terms of, you know, the the college courses that you have to take in terms of the science behind everything um, and looking at that, um, the anatomy, the physiology, all those kinds of things. It's, you know, it used to be everyone was like, oh, are you are you the person that's flipping my burger? It's like, no, I'm the person who could tell you what's in that burger. <laughs> but I think that's one of the good changes because we've seen so much interest, um, you know, since I've been a dietitian in, in nutrition and and healthy healthy eating habits and trying to improve your eating habits, too. Is, is it a four-year degree, or do you have additional training after that? Um, well, the base is a four-year degree. When I first started, it was we did a coordinated program. Now it's tending to go towards your four-year degree with a master's, so people do an internship. Um, so it's, a, it's pretty extensive that people don't realize. Now, I know there are some registered dietitian nutritionists who specialize in say, diabetes, for instance. Right. Are there other types of specializations? Oh, definitely. Um, Like right in the hospital where we work, we have almost 30 dietitians, and they can range from inpatient dietitians that are working on on the pediatrics. They could be working with transplant. They could be working with ortho. We have our outpatient dietitians, such as myself. We work with people who have diabetes. We have um, people who work with our perinatal. We have people that just do general we have our GI dietitians, pediatric as well as adults. So there's, we've almost become like the medical field that there are specialties even within the dietitian's field. And then there's nutritionists outside of the hospital, like just community. Community dietitians, dietitians that work at grocery stores. Now we have, we have dietitians who are blogging. We have dietitians who are doing online counseling for patients. Um, we have dietitians working in the military, sports teams. It's just an, it's an unbelievable, great expanse in terms of the field of dietics, dietetics. 
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate. I wanted to talk with you about some of the important themes that have been advanced by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics this year. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of eating a variety of nutrients, why is getting a variety important? Well, that's one of the things that we've always tried to get people to think about. Because when we think about variety, you are not limiting yourself to one food and that one food has, you know, certain nutritional qualities. The more variety, the more you are introducing to your, your body and your food, food intake a variety of nutrients, color, fiber, all those kinds of things. So that's a really important thing. You can look at variety in terms of the color of the food. So where we say, let's try and get more fruits and vegetables, eat more greens, eat more yellow, orange color vegetables. So that is just a great way of healthy eating because you are introducing more and more nutrients and and more great combinations of food. Well, let's review. What are the food groups that need to be included? Well, we always look at, I mean, you can go back to the old, you know, um, my plate. You can look at the old pyramid. We're always including some type of whole grain because uh, we want people to look at the whole grains in terms of providing great fiber. We're looking at your dairy because your dairy can provide good calcium as well as protein. We're looking at always your fruits and vegetables because we say those are, you know, those are like the first mainstay that we try and get people to have more of. And even more, probably, we try and push more of the vegetables lately because we know more of the the science behind more plant-based. Lean protein. We need some protein in our diet. Um, So that's another thing. You know, we recommend more fish, chicken, lean meats. And people always get a little concerned and say, do we need fats in our diet? And we do. We need some fats. But, again, with everything, it's all about what's our portions and how much are we eating and how often are we eating those foods. So I didn't hear a sugar or dessert group. Those can be included, but they're not our major. When we're looking at our major groups, so again, that's the thing. Realistically, are we going to tell people never have a dessert? No. What I'm going to look at more is how often are you having it, and if you're having it maybe too frequently, could you decrease the amount of what you're having? I think it's important when we talk about variety and we talk about all the things that you know, dietitians talk about it's also important for people to enjoy their food. I want people to enjoy life. I want people to enjoy food. I don't want us to think of how they always think of us as the food police. You know, people are always surprised when I'm like, yeah, you can have that dessert, but I want you to think about the taste and I want you to enjoy it. And maybe you can have a smaller piece. They're always going to think we're always going to be no, no, no negative. And I find that's the worst approach. Now, I know water is not a food group but, item, but but is it is water considered a nutrient? Um, water is considered a hydration for us. Um, you know, I don't know if they actually how we classify water. We just classify water as something that we talk to people in terms of what's your hydration, where are you getting your fluids from. And, again, that can lead us to where you're saying about the added sugar. So if, you're, if your fluid intake is more coming from sodas, could you switch that and go back more towards water? So it is one of the things that we always talk to people, like, what are your fluids? And um, that's a, that's a, t- a touchy subject sometimes because people don't realize that, you know, that cappuccino really probably doesn't have much coffee, but it has a lot right. of added sugar. So those are the kinds of things, as a dietitian, we kind of pull it out of people, like, oh, well, what do you, it's kind of like taffy. You know, people don't think about it so much. It's like, oh, what do you have with that? What do you drink with that? You know, what are you snacking on? So um, a nutrition visit that most people don't realize could take anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour when you're doing a one-on-one consult. Well, yeah, I imagine there's a lot of those habits that we have that we just don't even think about. Right, and until someone mentions it, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, I forgot I do that. Oh, yeah, I forgot I do that. And so it's that, all right, what are you doing? And not, again, on a negative. It's just that that's helping us to say, what's your pattern? What are your styles? And then how can we help you make more positive changes? Now, in terms of portion control, even if we're talking about variety, you still have to think about portion control, right? Still want to think about portion control. Because, again, if we aren't thinking about portion control, what typically is going to happen is, oh, while I'm gaining weight. And, again, we look at weight gain, you know, concerns with diabetes, heart health, those kinds of things. So, And even just for good general nutrition, uh, we want people to be at at a good weight. We don't want people to be heading towards that BMI, towards overweight obesity. Now, the nutrition label on foods, is that going to help a person uh, know what the portion should be? Oh, yeah. I think with the new changes, I think it's going to be a very, very good step. 
because the new labels were going to look at something more realistically <laughs> because it's not going to say, oh, this little serving of ice cream is a half a cup. It's going to say, well, if you buy this little pint thing and you eat this whole little half pint, this is the calories for it. Or if you have this 16.9-ounce bottle of soda, it's not going to be 2.5 servings. It's going to be the bottle. So more real, yeah, and I've seen like bags of chips. They used to yeah. be, you know, two servings in a bit, you know. Right, one. two servings in a bag. Do you think anybody cuts out, you know, counts out 15 to 16 chips? No, they eat the bag. So I, I definitely think the new labels are going to be a, a great help for people because I think they're, if they, if they use them, which I think is important to do, but it's going to be definitely more realistic. It's going to be, you're going to eat that little bag of chips. You're going to eat that bag of pretzels that's going to have, you know, the whole bag is the serving size. So I'm, I'm very excited about the new labels. I think they're great. Well, I know people like to be spontaneous, but um, the the idea that planning your meals can help you make better decisions. Oh, definitely. Okay. Definitely. And and the thing about that is, you know, I've been a dietitian a long time, um, but that's one of the things people are always like, well, can you give me sample menus? How can you help me? And meal planning can be so easy. It's just, again, we have to break it down. We have to look at how can I do this? And you have to know what your family likes, what you like, um, you know, what your financial situation is. But it can be something as easy as uh, a pork roast is on sale. So I can have that on Sunday, and then I can take that pork roast, and then maybe I can make two days later, I can make barbecued pork from that. And I can serve that over noodles and the pork roast I had with a baked potato. So some of those are the easy plannings, and I think what people do is we tend to make it too difficult. We pretty much eat about the same things, and we have our typical meal. So it's like, why not plan four, four ideas for dinner? Why not plan four lunch ideas? You know, and if something comes up, that's not the end of the world. But at least you know that I planned this. I went grocery shopping, so that food is available. If I don't have time, well, I still have eggs in the refrigerator, and I can make an egg frittata, those kinds of quick, easy things. So I think sometimes we, we want it. We want it but we tend to make it more difficult than it really is. Well, thank you so much to registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin from Upstate. Oh, thank you, Amber, and stay healthy, everyone. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Eating disorders cause great suffering. Three of our writers gave us insight into how healthcare professionals and others sometimes cause more stress to the people they say they wish to help. Sophia Valeska Gorgans is a medical student at Emory University. Here is her poem on obesity. There is a weight to my body I fear causes doctors to judge me for my lack of control. Don't you know better treatments are available than your own will to exercise? I admit I have no will to exercise. They list medical managements, try to convince me of surgery where they cut the stomach small. I don't know how that can be better. I had a friend who died on the table, blood clot to the lungs, or lost too many vitamins, called dumping syndrome, as if giving it a name makes it worthwhile. I live in this body and breathe. I am worthwhile. But sometimes I forget because of how, not what, how they speak at me. Jessica Mehta is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the author of several books. She is currently a fellow at the Halcyon Arts Lab in Washington, D.C. Here is her poem, Great Grace and Sharp Wings. 37 years old and still starving myself, how much longer until I don't care anymore? You say stop caring now, but I don't know if I can be one of those old ladies with limp hair and no lipstick. Not that this is old, it's just, when does old happen? How do we simply slip into it like it fits? I'm not sure I have the capacity to grow old with grace or by any other means. Do we call fat 60-year-old women fat fat? Or is that when plump begins? How about 70 or 80? When does it all end? And how do I stop running hands over stomach 
to see if today's a skinny day. My plan is to die at 66, right before the life insurance expires. And maybe, if I do it right, they'll say it was a slender old woman who fell, with great grace and sharp wings in front of that rumbling train. There'll be no open casket, and guilt-laden memories are kind to the dead. Please, if you remember, call me beautiful in the obits, and choose a photo where my collarbones protrude like plumage. And finally, Sarah Coleman, a retired neonatologist from Springfield, Missouri, gives us a hint of the story behind one woman's weight in her poem, Rage. Compulsive eating. To keep what you would take from me, I consume and assimilate voraciously without hunger. To hide what you can't see in me, I add layers immobilizing dressing and armor. To silence what you refuse to hear me say, I pad and stuff myself stealthily, muting my screams. Female insignificance. A doctor changing into scrubs in nurses' locker rooms. She surrenders her thoughts for a man's presentation so others will listen. Securing the mortgage, her name on the deed, her husband is listed as owner. Delivered from her body, her children bear their father's name. And so she ate and ate and ate, and no one dared notice. Weight loss. I burn my banner. I squelch my rebellion. I shrink, not to walk the runway or join the Olympics of lust, not to be what I am told I should be, small, boyish, passive, quiet. I am a woman warrior, exhausted by the weight of insignificance. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.